Good morning. If I haven't met you yet, my name is Rich. The purpose of our church, of Center Church, is to make and mature disciples, followers of Jesus Christ. And we try to do that in lots of different ways. And at the beginning of the year, things are kind of slow in January, coming off of December. And then all of a sudden in February, it kind of hits with a bang. Um, next week, we're going to be having a seminar, which I would really encourage you to attend. It's an evangelism seminar. It's, and, and maybe you think, ah, that's not me. I'm not good at that. Uh, maybe you think that doesn't sound great. But one of the things that we want to be as a church is salt and light to this world that we live in, a world that is becoming more and more corrupt as the darkness descends more and more. Um, we as a church are called to be a city on a hill, a light shining through our community. And sometimes we can think that uh, we have to be some kind of Bible expert or be able to have, answer all the questions that, we, that could possibly come up from any unbeliever that we talk to, and that's just not the case. I want all of us to feel confident in the fact that if we know the gospel and if we have the Spirit, we are equipped to be able to share this gospel with anyone at all. And so that's what, that's what we're going to be talking about this coming weekend. It's going to be on Saturday, Saturday morning. So through the app, please sign up for the evangelism seminar coming up on Saturday morning. We've got all kinds of other events that are happening. We have um, a marriage seminar happening on March 1st and 2nd. We have a couple women's events coming up. We have a forum night on February 20th. All of these things are things that you can find, and I would encourage you to go and look up in the app or on the website so that you can make sure you are up to date with all that's happening. So, if you have a Bible, if you can open up to the book of Psalms, and we will, for the last time, look at Psalm 23. We're going to start a new series coming up in 2 Corinthians, so you can begin to read ahead if you are so inclined. Have you ever heard the old adage, it's not the destination, but the journey that matters? And in our brief trip through Psalm 23, we find that both the journey and the destination matters. So far in this journey, we've seen that our shepherd king, Jesus, provides and protects even as he leads us through harrowing valleys shrouded in deep darkness. That's been the journey so far. Today we focus on the destination. We're going to arrive at verses 5 and 6, and we're going to see that our destination is one of triumph or victory. We don't just enjoy security from our shepherd, but we enjoy the triumph or the victory of our shepherd. And as we recognize this triumph and this victory we have through Jesus, it should provide for us peace and rest. See, all too often we are inhibited from experiencing peace and rest because of our enemies and our hardships. Our enemies and our troubles can give us all kinds of problems. And so what we're going to see today through verses 5 and 6 of Psalm 23 is how the Lord Himself addresses both our enemies and our hardships, and we're going to be encouraged to take rest or comfort in the triumph of our loving shepherd. I'm going to read the whole psalm again, 
but we're only going to focus on verses 5 and 6. So if you have a Bible, please join me as I read. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for His name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely, goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Let's pray. Lord, I am keenly aware of my great need this morning. I pray that you would help me to be clear. I pray that you would help us all to recognize that your word preached is for all of us and there's a sense in which you stand behind it, communicating to us. I pray that we would hear your voice. I pray especially for people who walk in more aware of their hardships and troubles than of your loving kindness. Pray that in some small way, this sermon would help them. And it's in your mighty name, Jesus, that we pray. Amen. We're going to see how we can take rest in the triumph of our King, first, by recognizing that He has triumphed over our enemies. He has triumphed over our enemies. In verse 5, we notice that the imagery of shepherd, which we've been seeing all the way up until this point, shifts to that of a host, the host of a meal. Look at verse 5. You prepare a table before me. The shepherd, the shepherd host, lays out a spread replete with all the sumptuous delicacies you can imagine. Imagine your favorite meal laid out on a table before you. You know the sights, you know the sounds, you know the smells, And then you have the anticipation. Think of your stomach rumbling and your mouth watering. That's the idea of verse 5. But notice in verse 5, David does not describe the food. He doesn't tell us what's for dinner. Rather, what does he draw our attention to? Not what is on the table, but who is around the table. And who is around the table? You prepare a table before me. Excellent. Where is this? In the presence of my enemies. Not so excellent. That does not sound very exciting. When my wife and I go to dinner, I don't think, I want to go someplace where there are serial killers. That would really help me to eat and feel relaxed. Would you, be, would you feel comfortable eating a meal, your favorite meal, ringed by people who hate your guts? Would you be able to relax and have conversation with enemies who shoot menacing stares at you? Could you savor good conversation with 
evil characters encircling your table? Of course not. A table with my enemies anywhere close does not sound inviting. Let's get even more personal with this. Let me ask you a blunt question. Who are those that would be around, that that you wouldn't want around? Your enemies. That you cannot relax around, or that you wouldn't be able to eat around. That you lose your appetite around. And obviously, we Christians must not We don't have the freedom to regard anyone with contempt. But we often have people who treat us like enemies. Do you? I do. One of the things in the almost 25 years of pastoral ministry that I've experienced, one of the things that shocked me the most was that of all the people who I would, over the time, regard me now as an enemy. Years ago, when I first started in pastoral ministry at 26 years old, I naively thought if I preached grace, pointed people to Jesus, pray for the hurting, visit the sick, whistle while I work, and help in any way I could, with a smile on my face and a spring in my step, Life would be great, and people would rise up and call me blessed. Let's just say that has not happened. I was frightfully wrong. I look back at 26-year-old me and want to go, you have no clue. And I'm glad I didn't, or I wouldn't be doing this. There are people that I don't want to be around. There are people who regard me with contempt for doing what I think is biblically right. Given their hatred, slander, or outright ungodliness, it's not, I don't think, I want to have a meal around them, much less relax around them. Do you have anyone like that in your life? Now, I'm not talking about making enemies because of poor behavior on our part or because we're jerks. I'm not talking about people who are hard to be around. I'm not talking about bothersome people. I'm talking about people who choose to hate us because we follow Jesus and seek to please him with our lives. This text says Jesus, the shepherd, presents a table before us in the midst of those who hate us and would rejoice at our downfall. Here's the reality. Those who praise God will often have enemies that breathe out threats. Faithful Christians may accumulate enemies because we serve the Lord above our jobs, above our families, above our money, above our reputation, above our education, and above everything else. Even if you don't have a human enemy, the devil and his hordes hate you. He's plotting and planning against you even now. And he's crouching at your door, ready to pounce. Now, when we're aware of enemies, what's our temptation? Our temptation is to fixate on them. So that we might try to figure out their thoughts and their plans, and what they might do. But instead, David calls our attention away from the hatred of our foes to the provision of the host. 
Look at verse 5. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Now, anointing sounds really weird. I don't know about you, but I'm not thinking, man, I cannot wait to go home and just dump a bottle of canola oil on my head. Exactly. Don't do that. No, no, you're good. But don't dump oil on your head. Now, that's not the picture, though. The world of Psalm 23 was a world of dust and sun and no running water. And in a world like this, people smelled like a poorly kept petting zoo. So, if you and I were transported back in that day, the thing that would jump out of, at us the most was the smells. It would be those smells. They'd pop us in the mouth. There were the smells of nature and also the smells of people who bathe, let's just say, not as often as us. Now, let's say you've been working in the fields for a week and then you're invited to a meal but you don't take a shower. How are you going to smell? No bueno is how you're going to smell. right? And so, what do you do? Well, you don't have running water, you don't have a bathtub, you don't have a shower... So, enter anointing oil. This oil had some cleansing properties, but it also smelled good. And so what happens in verse 5 is that the host cleans, as it were, and covers the dirtiness and the smells of the people who are coming. The oil cleans us up so that we don't stink so bad. And there's plenty of it. It's not as if he just takes a little bit and wipes it on our head and face, on our foreheads and on our face, or the back of our neck. But he pours it out upon our heads because there is so much. We have a generous host who wants to make sure that we are completely and totally comfortable. And he also makes sure that our cup overflows. That's a way of saying he's going to give us plenty to eat, plenty to drink, And this is a world where people went hungry. This shepherd host provided more than just a few morsels. He provided plenty of food. More food, more food than than they would have been able to have at a sitting in most situations. He was profoundly generous. This is the picture, a profoundly generous shepherd host who gives more than we need, who withholds nothing, who's committed to our good, who's constantly upholding us, who has already lavishly blessed us. We have a generous shepherd host. You see, this life's journey that we're all on, Jesus provides for our every need. And He gives us way more than we require. Further, with His protection, though we are encircled by snarling, snapping enemies, we can enjoy real peace. He has triumphed over them. He doesn't just grant safety and provision amid our enemies, but triumph over our enemies. Now there are two ways that our Lord triumphs over our enemies. First of all, we need to realize that the Lord one day will repay those who persecute the righteous. He will ensure that no one ever gets away with anything. One day he will judge with precision. 
And trust me, evil people get away with nothing. Let's say you've been wronged by someone you trusted and loved in whatever way, adultery, abuse, neglect, or other horrific things. The call for the Christian to forgive does not mean, it does not mean they get off free. It means that we entrust ourselves to the Lord who will repay them what they deserve if they do not repent. We always can entrust ourselves into his capable hands. This is why Peter can say, do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called that you may obtain a blessing. For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. He sees, friends. He sees. He knows. And his face is already against them. We can turn our eyes. See, here's the picture. We can turn our eyes to the Lord away from our enemies because our shepherd host has them in his sights and he is against them. At some level, we as Christians should expect to have those who regard us as enemies simply because we follow Jesus. Now, they might put it in other terms, but that's the fundamental reason. We live in a fallen and corrupt world that stands in opposition to our Lord, and it only stands to reason that if the, wor- if the world opposes the Lord, we will be opposed also if we follow him closely. One sign, not the only sign, but one sign of faithfulness is opposition from ungodly people. There will be those who oppose us simply because we follow Jesus. Now that doesn't mean we shouldn't share the gospel. That doesn't mean we shouldn't freely forgive. That doesn't mean we shouldn't pray for and do good for our enemies. But it does mean we need not be hopeless in the face of our enemies and their jeering. Think about it. We as Christians today, if you're a believer, a follower of Jesus, you were once an enemy of God, hating and being hated. And the gospel of Jesus Christ invaded your life and changed you forever. And the shepherd has set a table for you. We, you and me, we, his former enemies, he invites us now to dine. We who were once rebels to the core have experienced and will continue to experience his generous, unending grace. And he anoints us so that the stench of our sin does not separate us from him. And he provides grace upon grace upon grace upon grace so that our cup is always overflowing and He's always working together in everything that happens to us and everything that happens for us for our good. This is where we can take rest and comfort in the triumph of our loving shepherd over our enemies, human and spiritual. 
take rest. Friends, what can your enemies do to you, really? They can say unkind words. They can have mean thoughts. They can lie about you. They can hurt you. But can they, in an ultimate eternal sense, do anything that is lasting? The answer to that is no. Take rest in the triumph of your shepherd host over them. We can take rest in his triumph over our enemies and also, secondly, in his triumph over our hardships or over our troubles. Verse 6. Surely, goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. Two things about verse 6. Follow is way too passive. A better word might be to pursue or run after. The picture here is God's goodness and mercy is doggedly pursuing us. And the second thing is the translation of the word surely. That's not strong enough either. It it probably should be rendered, as the ESV footnote says, only. So we might render verse 6 something like this. Only goodness and mercy shall doggedly pursue me all the days of my life. Now what are we to make of that? Well, we've moved from the table now to being back out on the road. We get up from the table of incredible provision, back on the road of life, and getting up from the table, who would you expect to be doggedly pursuing us? The enemies, right? The enemies are like, all right, you're done eating, here we come. They're there, they're ready to pounce, they're waiting, they're going to get us. But that's not what happens. We see his goodness and mercy in hot pursuit. How does this help us? And what does this mean? David is looking back over his shoulder from where he's come. And instead of seeing his enemies in verse 5, Or the valley of darkness in verse 4, he sees only the shepherd's goodness and mercy. Instead of the difficult circumstances or raging enemies, he sees the kind of mercy, the kind mercy and continual goodness of God. He sees how, in some measure, the Lord, in his loving kindness and merciful attitude, has used all things, even the evil things, for our good. This is the kind of thing that happened to Joseph after being sold into slavery by his jealous brothers and after traversing life's deep shadow, he meets them, looks over his shoulder, rehearses the past and says, as for you, you meant evil against me. And it was evil. But God meant it for good. To bring to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. His family, even the nation of Israel, was saved by means of his hardship. 
One of the reasons the Lord takes us, as we saw two weeks ago, down difficult paths and through the valley of deep darkness is to show us how much we need Him. You see, if we don't walk through the valley of of the shadow of death, if we don't walk through troubles, we think we are fine and we have all the answers we need. But when we walk through troubles, we're caught, we have to press close to him just to survive. If you doubt it, talk to someone who's followed Jesus for decades. Ask them what's it, what it's like. Talk, like. Just sit down with a seasoned saint who has followed Jesus for 40, 50, 60 years and ask, tell me a time where the Lord showed up in a powerful way that you didn't expect. Tell me a time where you walked through hardship and trial and difficulty and you were, though you felt like you were overwhelmed, you made it. Tell me a time like that. And they will tell you, as they look back, the hardest times of their life was when the light of hope seemed to be extinguished. It was there that they learned most about the mercy and goodness of God. Now, if you're in the middle of hardship or trouble right now, it's going to be nearly impossible to perceive his goodness and his mercy. Why? Because you're walking through a deep darkness. Maybe you're in the middle of the trial of your life, and no matter where you look, you cannot perceive a shred of goodness and mercy. But there will come a day maybe years from now, or maybe in glory, when you will be able to look back over your shoulder and see where you came from and recognize God's purposes in it. We're not always able to perceive God's goodness moment to moment. Nearly always, it's in retrospect. Nearly always, it's in retrospect. If you've been following Jesus for years, think back. Think back to those moments where troubles pressed so close that your soul creaked. Where just getting out of bed seemed impossible. Think back. Think back to those years, years ago, And think how the Lord used those times to show you his provision and his love and his mercy. See, that's the picture. See, the picture is we walk through the hardships of life and we stop and we make it out. We experience the provision of the Lord and we look back over our shoulder and we see, even though we look back into that valley of deep darkness, even though we look back into all those hardships, even though we look back to that illness, that job loss, that relational suffering that we went through, even if we we look back and we, we see the sickness, we see the depression, we see all of those hard things, and we look back and we actually see only the goodness and mercy of God pursuing us right there with us every step of the way, even though we couldn't see it or know it at the same time. At the moment we were going for it, going through it.
If you're in the middle of hardship now, you're not going to see it. Remember, the goal of our journey is the destination to be with God forever. And our shepherd host, Jesus, he has a goal for us, and it's to resemble him more and more, to become more Christ-like. Until then, he has a purpose, and that's to transform us. As 2 Corinthians says, and we all, with unveiled face, behold the glory of God, are being transformed into the same image, that's the image of, our, of, the, of the Son, from one degree of glory to another. The goal is transformation. The goal is that the Lord takes you where you are now and doesn't say that's good enough. It's He takes you from where you are now and continues to walk you down the path of life so that with each step you become more and more like Jesus. So that with each step and walking through each hardship, you become more and more like your Savior so that one day you see Him face to face and you are like Him. That's the goal for our lives. The goal is transformation. See, Jesus does not exist for us so that all of our dreams come true and our life is easy. Often, Christians have the hardest kind of life out there. That's the way it works. And if we don't understand this, we will miss the point and become disillusioned. I'll show you what I mean. Years ago, I read a Twitter thread written by a former pastor who decided he was going to walk away from Christianity. He was a broken man, and heartache throbbed off the screen. Here's a sampling of what he said. He said, I am not a Christian anymore. After 40 years of being a devout follower, 20 of those being an evangelical pastor, I am walking away from faith. Even though this is a massive bomb drop in my life, it has been decades in the making. I was raised in a hyper-fundamentalist family, and it felt good to be in a system that promised all the answers and solutions to life. The problem is, the system didn't work. The promises were empty. The answers were lies. As an adult, my marriage was a sham, and a constant source of pain for me. I did everything I was supposed to. Marriage workshops, counseling, Bible reading together, date nights every week, marriage books, but my marriage never became what I was promised it would be. In 40 years, I never witnessed a single event that was supernatural. Not one. Time and again, I watched people die of cancer. I did funerals for 47 people from the ages of 4 to 96. I prayed in faith with hundreds of people for healing, but to no avail. I, God didn't answer my prayers. My devoutly Christian parents were abusive. My marriage was a sham. Prayer was never answered. Miracles were never performed. People died. Children rebelled. Marriages failed. Addictions occurred all at the same rate as unbelievers. The system just doesn't work, he says. See what he's saying? Christianity doesn't work and the system is a sham. The problem is, as tragic as it is, he seems to assume 
that the Christian system can be summarized with the following phrase. Be good and do the right thing and you will only experience good. That's not true. Friends, that's the health and wealth gospel. <coughs> the promise of Scripture is not do the right things and you will always be rewarded. The promise is entrust yourself to Jesus and He will work in your life to make you more like Him. Friends, the Lord does not promise happy marriages, obedient children, good jobs, robust health, Godly parents, plenty of extra money, miraculous signs, every prayer answered. He does promise for those that follow Him that we will be different as we follow Him, more like Him, reflecting the glory of God in our lives. He promises that if we follow Him closely, we will change. And often, maybe mostly, the way He does that is through hardship. Man, I wish it was a different way. I wish he did it through Slurpees. Man, I got to go get another Slurpee so I can change. He doesn't do that, though. Slurpees just give you cold headaches. See, this is why we can rest in his triumph. See, he is committed. If you're a Christian, he is committed so committed to you that he will allow you to walk through hardship and trial and difficulty so that you recognize your only hope is him. The system, the system is not obey and you will always be blessed. Do good and you will always get good. The system is you can entrust yourself to Jesus without reserve. And he has purposes you won't be able to understand always. But in retrospect, you'll be able to look back and see the dogged pursuit, only the dogged pursuit of mercy and grace and goodness from God. Now, I fully understand that there are some of us who've gone through things, maybe years ago, maybe decades ago, that you look back and you still can't understand. Life's hard like that. <coughs> and some answers are reserved for eternity. But here, our hardships, our troubles, always have a point. They're never pointless. You think about that? If you're a Christian, any suffering that you endure always has a point. It's never pointless, and it's never for nothing. It's always to turn you into a follower of Jesus who resembles him more. Always. Always. With that in mind, what can hardships do to us? But as Christians, help us become more, in, more and more like him. The triumph that is ours over our enemies and hardships come only because of our loving shepherd, Jesus Christ. He and only He is our shepherd who restores our weary souls, who takes us on the right path, 
who protects us in the valleys of deep darkness, who ward off all sorts of evil, who lavishly, generously provides for all our needs, who only visits us with mercy and kindness whether we can see it or not. But do you know how all these blessings are ours? Do you know why we can read Psalm 23 and say, this is for me? Because these blessings, these promises apply to us today, but they did not apply (coughs) to our shepherd, to Jesus Christ on that day. He richly deserved the blessings of God, but instead received the wrath of God for our sins. Our shepherd was left alone, and he had an aching want. He had a want not to be forsaken, but he was forsaken. He was led not to still waters and restoration, but to a Roman trial. He was made to lie down, not in green pastures, but in a grave, dead. He walked through the real valley of death with evil accosting him and no one to protect him or comfort him. Why? The cross was prepared for him in the presence of his enemies. His head was pierced with the crown of thorns and his blood overflowed. Why? So that enemies like us might be invited to his table so that we might, though we are rebels who have sinned more times than we can count, might pour those sins or might, might take those sins and put them on him so that we might receive his righteousness. So that we might read verse 6. And recognize only goodness and mercy shall doggedly pursue me all the days of my life because that day in his life he did not experience that. And because of what he's done, dying for our place, rising for our justification, you and I and every Christian shall dwell in the house of of the Lord forever. Rest in the peace, that peace that is yours. Friends, we have have the promise that because of our shepherd's care, no enemy, human or demonic, no enemy can separate us from him. No hardship, no matter how difficult, can overwhelm you and separate you from him. I wonder if Paul in his devotions included Psalm 23 the day he wrote this. What? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness, or danger, or sword, as it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No. In all these things, we are more than conquerors. How? Through Him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God In Christ Jesus our Lord. Friends, we can take comfort in His triumph. 
for us. We can take comfort in his triumph. What is that thing? Maybe that hardship. Maybe that enemy that is blocking your view of your shepherd right now. What is it? Maybe it's something that you think over and over and over about and causes you not to be able to fall asleep. Or that you carry around like a burden. Maybe it's some sin that's unconfessed. Or the weight of a double life. Maybe it's someone who's attacking you verbally just because you follow Jesus. We can pray that the Lord release those burdens. But the reason we can pray for him to do that is because he has already triumphed. Friend, I'm going to invite you to look away from your troubles, look away from your enemies, to take comfort, to take comfort in what he, Jesus, has already done for you. You you have in him an anointing of oil and a cup that overflows, meaning he will never leave you, he will never forsake you, he will never abandon you. He will always give you exactly what you need. And maybe, just maybe, what you need right now are these enemies speaking to you, and these hardships you're going through to remind you that you need Jesus just to survive. That you need to press closer to him. This is why we need to look away from those things and look to our Lord knowing that he is working all things together for your good. And one day, you will be able to look back over your shoulder and only see the goodness and mercy of God that is doggedly 